Welcome to Pioneering Minds. My name is Adam Norris, and each week I'll be sitting down at Macquarie University with a special guest to discuss some of the most interesting, innovative, and improbable aspects of science, art, life, the universe, and everything. Once again, Han Solo, Chewbacca, and a motley crew of space heroes are adventuring across a galaxy far, far away as the latest Star Wars instalment hits cinemas. But just how outrageous are the shenanigans of Solo and his crew? How soon can I jump in my very own Millennium Falcon and sail from planet to planet? To find out, we enlisted the help of Dr. Lee Spittler, astronomer extraordinaire who you may recall we spoke with once before about the discovery of his own galaxy. Who better to talk about the realities of space exploration than someone who is just in the very next room handling Starbugs? We're here today with Dr. Lee Spittler once again back here at the AAO. Uh, it's wonderful to be back again. Thank you for inviting us. Fun to be here. Yeah. There's a, a lot to talk about. There's, well, I mean, there's a, a new Star Wars movie coming out, so everybody's interested in space and exploration again. And we'll we'll touch on that as well as the the current research that you're doing, some of the innovations, which uh, I've just been given a bit of a tour just to see what's happening here at the moment. But before any of that, I thought we we have to get something out of the way, which is just who was your favorite Star Wars character? <laughs> ah, I think I liked Luke the best. Um, just the, the coming from a small, you know, middle of nowhere thing, I could actually relate to because I grew up in a small town. So the idea that he came from nothing and kind of became, you know, Jedi Master of the Universe uh, was pretty cool. Not when a I, bad when role I was model. A young kid. There's some good aspirations there. So, were you yourself out there as a young child in some twilight paddock, looking up at the stars and wondering? I guess I was. I I do remember just staring up at the stars. My mom, in particular, would take me out, and we just kind of stare at the stars. And I guess that's where I got my curiosity about the universe, and maybe that's why I'm here today. So, yeah, yeah. definitely wonderful. Well, I feel that. Today, when people think about space exploration and space technologies, we're all essentially waiting for Elon Musk just to get us to Mars. I guess even though Mars isn't exactly the most hospitable of places, it makes sense because it's next. We did the moon, now we'll do Mars. I think a lot of people may have been expecting that it would just take some kind of eccentric playboy billionaire, a Branson or a Musk, to come along and get this whole ball rolling. But how high in the sky do you think... Elon Musk and Branson's of the world are like how realistic are these ambitions of actually getting people onto Mars by the end of the century? Yeah, I'm fascinated by it because it's so exciting. The idea that we're not just thinking about going to the stars, we're actually doing something very concrete and making some big steps uh, right now to set the groundwork up. So I do think it's going to be, it's hard going, uh, but this is the first crucial step, the the things that Elon Musk and uh, Branson are doing to get the the, the hardest part of the problem, which is getting people and things up into space. Um, We have to fight against gravity, which is really hard to do. Um, We need to be really clever and I think they're kind of doing it. It's you kind of wait for the the big thing to go really really wrong but <laughs> it's just kind of going really well and that's leading to more people getting excited about it which is going to certainly get people into the idea that we might be able to do it so yeah. we got a long ways to go but it's so exciting right now 
It's interesting that, as you say, getting people excited will, you know, create a little bit of a snowball and then, you know, there's, there's momentum to keep going. This is a little off topic, but it did throw my mind back to the um, Challenger disaster mm. and what a blow that was. Do you suppose it's too much to extrapolate from that disaster that set public opinion back, which in turn stalled a lot of interest in exploring space. Yeah, and I think what it did stall is maybe the public funding of such activities, right? Mm. So NASA was, with its partners around the world, was kind of the leader in making this stuff happen. And something so tragic and so public-facing as the, the disaster, I think, really stalled that program. And the, the solution is to overcompensate or kind of make it really safe, and then the price goes up. Mm. And so it almost just kind of broke that program. I'm not saying that we're not going to have more tragedies in the future with these uh, these other efforts, um, but that was a big one. That really um, kind of stalled that effort. But it might allowed um, other people to come in and, and focus NASA's efforts, maybe not on doing it themselves, but supporting other entities like um, SpaceX to do it instead of NASA. Mm. Um, it seems to be working uh, so far. I think it's interesting that this rise of, of fresh invigorated interest in space exploration has kind of paralleled the potential of space tourism now mm. that there is the potential of just having enough money to buy the ticket to go up there and have a bit of a look around do you suppose it's something to be encouraged uh turning something which is so profoundly mysterious and epic into not exactly a cash grab but just a tourist piece of hokum of like oh yes now it's just another event you can do yeah I guess it's a tricky one because one advantage I, s I would say is that the people that can actually f afford to do this in the beginning to actually go up into space, pay the big price to actually go up, not for very long, even just if it's kind of an up and down trip, those are the people with power and influence. Um, they have the money to do that. So that's the kind of people you want to be actually inspiring to think about the bigger picture, that the Earth is a tiny little bit of almost dust in the universe, dust and water. To give them that perspective to see it from space would be amazing mm -hmm. and get the people that have influence and power in this world thinking about what's next. Um, what, what do we need to do? Maybe to get to Mars, to get to the moon, um, the bigger picture. Yeah, I think that's a very interesting perspective. To talk about, I suppose, the practicalities of space as best we can. Uh, I mean, I've been longing for the day I have my very own Millennium Falcon for a long time now. But then looking at something like the the kind of vehicles we see in Star Wars and films of the like, compared to what we are currently launching from Cape Canaveral, they don't seem like the most um, safe modes of passage up there. So what do we need to keep in mind when we think about humans in space? I mean, this is about as far from our natural environment as you can get. So what are the the challenges of being up there? Yeah, for humans to be up there, it's kind of, I guess it's kind of like going underwater to the deep ocean where immediately outside of your little container, you just simply can't cannot live. So you kind of have to bring this shell and the environment that you need to live in that shell along with you. And it needs to brave whatever whatever's out there. And so it's just a really delicate system. I guess the way to think about it is it's you versus the universe, mm. uh, your, your little pod, your little spaceship is fighting everything. Everything else wants to crunch you and freeze you and, you know, zap you with radiation. And so you have to push back. And um, it's really hard. You have to do a lot of things really well all at the same time. And if one thing fails, the whole thing falls apart. It's a remarkable gamble. Would you do it? 
I would do it in an instant. Um, I would ha- probably have to run it by my family first and stuff like that, but it would be amazing. I mean, just, I don't know. It'd be the culmination of uh, your life, my life, I guess, is mm. to see the earth for what it is. It would be a remarkable moment. You mentioned gravity, of course, being one of the, the main hurdles. And uh, as I understand, one of the um, the ambitions of these private space companies is the idea of reusable rockets. What are some of the other technicalities, I'll say, just to totally downplay just how challenging it would be, of, of getting up there and making it more of a, a sustainable industry? I guess what's going to happen, kind of what is happening now in parallel, the uh, miniaturization of computers in particular and the development of really sophisticated communications technology means that the barrier to put things into space is becoming less. So we under- we can build very small things that can do quite sophisticated calculations or monitoring of whatever you need to do. And because they're becoming smaller and consuming less power, it means you can put more of them up into space because the challenge, again, is the gravity thing. So you can only put so much up there um, because it just costs so much to put you know, one kilogram of, of something. So by miniaturizing everything, and we're doing that in all areas of science and technology on the ground, that's allowing us to do a lot more in space for per unit kilogram mm. that you put up there. And so I think that developing in parallel or along at the same time means there's going to be a whole lot of uh, use cases for putting things up there and better communicating to us on the ground, GPS systems, monitoring you know, distant galaxies for astronomers like myself. And so I think that's going to drive a lot of it. We're going to find a lot of new use cases for that. We'll want to put a lot more things up. And so someone will pay for that money uh, or that rocket launch to actually put those things up there. So I think mm. that's going to help uh, this next phase of uh, going into space. We were just uh, in a different room looking at space bugs. Starbucks. Starbucks. Starbucks, which are themselves, uh, we're talking about things on very small scales. Uh, and it strikes me of just how remarkable it is that so much of this technology is focused on such minute measurements and such tiny pieces of, of engineering blasted into this infinite void up there and just on such a huge scale. We'll talk more about the research that you're doing here, the projects that you're working on, but I thought it would be interesting to get your perspective on what I suppose is a much more philosophical question, which is just what is the purpose of space travel? It's dangerous. It's expensive. The time frame of, of achieving uh, anything is, is so long. Why should we be up there at all? I guess you're thinking about why should we put humans up there. So I, I can make a really strong case for why we should put little robots up there to explore the solar system and maybe communicate better. But to put people up there, I think the main thing that it does is it, first off, it challenges humans to tackle really hard problem as we talked about earlier um, it's tough to actually put things into space uh, humans in space anything in space and for it to survive but the challenge of actually overcoming that challenge and seeing a human up there walking on the moon is inspiring uh, you know there's entire generations of scientists today who saw the Apollo moon landing you know on tv when they were very young and that got them into science. Um, that alone, I think, is the most valuable uh, outcome of that. Um, it's going to be a long, extended process, many generations, but keeping people inspired about challenging 
challenging the universe and seeing what what's up there, so seeing what we can do is really important. Mm. I'm looking forward to one day seeing somebody else on the moon again. I, it's been long enough now. It's time to time to go back. That, that also that just put me in mind of this is another Elon Musk anecdote. But he was talking recently about the need for lunar bases and uh, Mars bases as well, not just for the sense of discovery and um, and ingenuity to get people there, but as a way of shoring up against global warfare, that if things go terribly off the rails, there's there's look, there's humanity is out there, it can come back once the dust settles and put us back on track. Is there a worry as space exploration or the, the technologies to get into space become more practical and more available that the weaponization of space starts to become a parallel concern? Yeah, I guess you got to worry about if you're putting really sophisticated technology up there and someone can kind of point that downwards and you need to worry about, you know, kind of space to earth weapons. Uh, but it, then if you're also up in space, it's then quite a delicate environment. So it's quite easy to puncture a hole in something and the, the whole system's lost. Mm. So I think it definitely changes the idea of, you know, going to an airport today and you have to go through the security lane and you have to get checked and all that. Hmm. To have the equivalent in space which, where you're in such a vulnerable environment, it must be really hard to be, f- you know, foolproof. You need to have people that are not going to, you know, send a hammer through a window and just <laughs> completely destroy the space station. Uh, or here, if someone does that, it might hurt, you know, a small number of people, but up there must be kind of crazy. Yeah. The, the <laughs> spaceport security must be pretty, yeah, yeah. pretty oh, tough. Oh, that's, look, spaceport security. Yeah, I think we've yeah. just cracked on the next <laughs> the next blockbuster right there. Um, I guess that was unexpected segue, but on the idea of blockbuster, I suppose, or of um, popular opinion, I happened last night to catch one of the um, these online masterclass ads with Chris Hadfield, the Canadian astronaut, which I thought was quite interesting. Would be, I'm sure it would be an amazing class. But it did get me thinking about his career and just how phenomenally popular he turned out to be, singing Bowie songs in space and having quite a strong social media presence. And he's written books now, and there's, you know, he's, he's quite a, a renowned figure. Do you suppose that is potentially where astronauts are heading, that there is going to be a sense of, yeah, we want celebrity to come along into our space missions. Now, we need to make them that little bit more glamorous i can see why i mean the idea that we are inspiring people to think about the bigger picture of the space and get into science and technology and having a public face a a human that can communicate and do david bowie songs on youtube um i think that's that's important the the people that are selected to go become astronauts they they must be one of the most remarkable people you can uh, meet because they have to do so much on do, do so well on many fronts, mm. and so science communication I think is w- one of those important things. And as a, an astronomer, where my practical outcomes, uh, such as studying distant galaxies, doesn't really translate into you know you know developing new technology on Earth directly, kind of. It's still pretty exciting. I remember when we it first is. spoke to you. Not that it had happened at the time, but you had discovered a galaxy of your own. I mean, you know, I'm sure I could count on one finger the amount of people I know who've achieved a similar feat. <laughs> it's true, but you only know about it because I communicated with it. So I had yes, to be a good true. communicator to get that idea out there and, I guess, describe something so out of this world. Uh, it, it's not easy to do that. And I think 
It's an important part of what we do, though. Do you, how do you say, still keep tabs on the galaxy? Is there, not that you can just kind of check in to see how the, the garden's growing up there, but is there still a wealth of information that you can plumb from it? Yeah, so not much happens on the duration of, well, I guess since the last time we spoke, about a year ago <laughs> in particular. But these things are so far away that it's actually really hard to see anything change um, mm. in our lifetimes. Um, and so what you do is you, you, you take some information from a galaxy, you go away and you think about it, you talk to other people about what you've learned, and then you go uh, and try to answer the next question. You, you have a theory, you have an idea, and to challenge it or to advance it, uh, you go off and try and look at that galaxy in a different way. So maybe you look at the UV lights or the infrared light to answer a slightly different question than, than the previous one. Uh, so yeah, we're continuously kind of looking for the, the next question that we can answer with the limited things that we can see up there. We can only see so much, but you can look at it di in different ways, different types of light, different instruments, different telescopes. Do you know what you're looking for in these scenarios. It reminds me of the Donald Rumsfeld known knowns, the known unknowns, and the unknown unknowns. Is there, are there surprises in the observation, or is it more we have the questions, we just haven't quite worked out the methodology or the answer yet? Yeah, so you have limited time on a telescope, or it's, it's hard to get time or money to use a telescope. And so you usually have to kind of compete with other scientists to use a telescope. Uh, and the only ways you're going to get selected is if you have a well-defined... fights in the car park? Yeah, no. <laughs> usually you just have a, you know, a battle of the minds, I guess. So you, you pose a question, someone else poses a question, and then there's a committee of astronomers who look at those two questions and pick one that might be more compelling, have broader implications. Hmm. And so that person then gets the time, they go to the telescope, but when you when you go there, because no one's ever done this before, you could discover something that you had no idea that you would actually ever see. Or maybe the question was the wrong question. Maybe you completely, it, it was a, a false lead, and you discovered that it actually wasn't a really profound uh, way of answering that question. And so that's one of the most exciting things about astronomy, is usually you're seeing something that no one has ever seen before, or looking at it the same thing, but in a very different way. And so there's a lot of potential for... Um, discovering th some things that you just never knew existed. It's hard. It's rare. Uh, more and more, it's... I guess what, what the problem is, is that once everyone... Let's say you build something like the Hubble Space Telescope. Hubble all of a sudden could zoom into the universe like no other instrument could do in the past. So all of a sudden you can see small things, zoom into things that you just couldn't do before. And so the discoveries that Hubble has made are huge because there's just no way that humans could see the universe in that way. But it's been around for a while. And so Hubble, though it's still making discoveries, the number of discoveries is kind of decreasing because we're just humans. We can only ask so many intelligent questions. And so we just are looking at running out of things to do with Hubble. And so we're thinking about the next Hubble and other things. And as soon as we put up the next Hubble, which is the James Webb Space Telescope, no doubt we'll have a whole slew of other discoveries, but it eventually will kind of use, I guess, the obvious things to do, and we'll start to run out of discoveries. And that's kind of the natural cycle of things. Hmm. Uh, but it's all driven by technology, so it's the new instrument, it's the new spacecraft, the new telescope that, uh, that leads to that discovery. So speaking of new, new telescopes and new discoveries, and to focus on some of the research which is happening here, 
Last time we spoke, you were working on The Huntsman, which is, is still being worked on. It's it's still uh, viable and still going forward. And now we have Skyhopper. Could you tell us more about this, this current research? Yeah, so Skyhopper is a, uh, a telescope that will hopefully launch into space in a few years' time. Um, it's pretty small. It's about the size of a bit bigger than a shoebox. So it's it's tiny, uh, but that tiny little box will kind of be its own self-contained unit, like a, almost like a mini spacecraft. So it'll have a little room for uh, the telescope, which we're, we're designing. Uh, it'll have battery power, temperature control, communications to beam back data from uh, the little spacecraft. What we're designing it to do is uh, study a few things. So one thing that it's going to do is stare at uh, relatively bright stars and look for planets passing in front of that star. The cool thing about this spacecraft, it it looks at infrared light. The stars that you see at night, they're mostly shining at uh, visible wavelengths that we can see, but they're kind of dim at infrared light. And so what this telescope's going to do is stare at stars that are pretty bright in the visible wavelengths, but in the infrared, they're going to be kind of faint. And it makes it much easier to see a planet passing in front of that Mm. distant star. And hopefully in that way, we'll discover very, very distant uh, planets around other stars. Um, But that's just one thing we're doing. So we're also looking at trying to look for something called gamma ray bursts, which are extremely energetic uh, events, kind of like a supernova, but much, much bigger and they're kind of related in a sense, but these are like the biggest supernova in the universe. And they produce this really intense radiation called gamma rays, which travel literally across the entire universe. We're talking 12 billion light years away. And there are telescopes that are looking for these bursts of light. And what the Skyhopper will do is as soon as another telescope finds it, it'll immediately jump over and kind of hop over to where this burst of gamma rays is and start looking for other infrared light. And that will allow us to determine how far away these bursts are um, and understand how or what's actually producing them. Do we have any idea currently where they are, how many they might be at any particular time when you're looking up at the night sky? Or is it more that we can kind of see evidence of their existence without knowing exactly where they are or what we're looking for? Yeah, so it's um, kind of a long... Gamma ray bursts were discovered quite a while ago, but it's really difficult type of light or radiation to capture. So it's been kind of slow going, but uh, we know enough about how often that they occur that when we uh, hopefully launch Skyhopper, we expect to see maybe a few hundred or so gamma ray bursts over about two year lifetime of of the telescope. Uh, But that's just kind of a guess. Um, We'll better understand what we can actually see once we um, are actually up there and mm. um, you might get lucky, might get some more to help us better understand what's going on. Might see something that we, again, never expected to see, um, a lot of potential because this little spacecraft, it's tiny and small, uh, but it's really unique. Um, it's, it's kind of uh, one of a kind. And so hopefully we'll find something that we just weren't expecting to find, maybe laser pulses from different civilizations. Um, mm. who, knows? who knows? It's crazy to think of something the size of a shoebox that can achieve so much uh, and yet be so complicated and, and contain. Uh, before we uh, run out of time, I also wanted to talk a little about these Starbucks because we just went uh, next door and we saw some of the, the technology behind it. And it's uh, remarkable just how precise and how much work is going into it. Uh, but could you lead us in describing what these are? What is what is happening just down the hallway? Sure, yeah. So 
one of the challenges of astronomy is collecting light from really faint and distant things. And so uh, the people at the Australian Astronomical Observatory are experts in just kind of taking advantage of the properties of light, taking technology, and capturing that light so that an astronomer like myself can do uh, or answer you know, interesting questions about the universe. So it's all about putting light onto, into the, the telescope. And what they're really good at here at the observatory at, at, at using is uh, fiber optic technology. So uh, fiber optics, which um, you know, are used for communications, Ambien uh, and things like that, once you get the light into one of those things, you can actually, it will travel uh, many, many meters, um, like 30 meters or more, without losing much of the light. So uh, what we're trying to do is actually get light from a distant star or galaxy into a fiber. And once it's in there, then we can move it around into maybe a, a room at the bottom of the telescope where you have a really stable environment, and you can capture that light and understand what you actually see. But the tricky part, um, these fiber cables are so thin, uh, they're like this, you know, the width of a, a human hair, and focusing light from something that's you know, 10 billion light years away into something that's the width of a you know, human hair is extremely challenging. Mm. And so that's what they're developing right next door in the observatory is a, a really precise technology to move that little fiber cable to exactly where the star is on our telescope to make sure that all the light from that star actually goes down the fiber and into the, the camera that's at the, the base of the telescope. And so what they're using is uh, little tiny motors that move these little um, fiber cables. And there's a couple ways to do it. Um, the Starbugs are pretty neat. What they, what they do is um, there's this little vacuum chamber, very small. It's you know, about the size uh, of a pencil or something. Um, and what it does is it suctions to this glass plate, uh, and it just kind of sits there. Um, and what you want to do is move that little chamber, which has a fiber optic cable in the middle, to the location of a star. And it has to move it very accurately and all that. So what they've designed is a little tiny uh, kind of step-like motor that slowly moves the fiber along the glass plate uh, and steps it to the location of where the, the star is located. The neat thing about what they're doing is they're not just trying to do that for one fiber and one star or galaxy at a time, actually doing this for hundreds and even thousands of stars and galaxies at exactly the same time. So if you look at these things, it's actually an entire glass plate filled with maybe a hundred of these little star bugs, which all move independently and at the same time. And within a few minutes, we'll actually position all of them all at the same time to the location of the stars and the galaxies that you're looking in the sky. And so it's a really efficient way of um, observing more stars and galaxies uh, uh, and building up a better understanding of what we're, we're looking at. It sounds genuinely remarkable. And having seen some of the, the mechanics next, or the echidna, uh, as, it's, as it's being called, it's just the, the scale or the sweep of the sky that you're going to be able to look up out there, I think, is incredible. We're uh, essentially out of time. But I did want to ask... Before we, we finish today, speaking of the Star Wars universe and uh, the possibilities that that world suggests, where we have faster-than-light travel and we have uh, ships jumping all over the place, is that level of technology even in the realms of possibility, or is it so implausible? When we think of, of journeying to other planets, is it more that other staple of, of deep sleep and waking up at the other end? What do you think is going to be the the way that we finally reach some other galaxy. 
goodness yeah it very much sounds like uh, a sci-fi thing rather than a reality thing at the moment oh yes but I guess I'm an optimist, and one thing you could kind of draw an, an analogy to is maybe, you know, just like mobile phone technology. If you just 20 years ago talked to someone about how portable and how powerful mobile phones would be, they would kind of laugh and chuckle and say, oh, that's a, that'd be a neat sci-fi concept <laughs> or movie. Um, but 20 years later, it's like, it's not even sci-fi anymore. It's quickly gone from, you know, crazy sci-fi world to instantly or not instantly but over a short period of time becoming mm-hmm. normal and so you could say maybe someday this will happen with space flight where something that just seems so ridiculous and far-fetched and appropriate only for the movies could just happen to change in the next 20 years and maybe there's a new technology maybe something just happens and in 20 years time we're just taking for granted the fact that we can just zip around the solar system maybe maybe to other stars uh, and not really question it too much uh, it'll just be normal so that would children be... of that world wondering how we ever got along without it exactly yeah <laughs> what did you do before space flight <laughs> so uh, it's going to be a long way but you never know what's uh, in store for us just in the next 20 years so um i guess i'm i'm excited about finding out um following things like elon musk uh, but other things as well other people do, developing technologies that might just solve the energy crisis or you know, faster than light travel. Yeah. That'd be awesome. Sky's the limit. Well, Dr. Spitler, thank you very much for talking with us again. I'm sure in another year we'll, we'll find some other cause to come by and, and say hello. Uh, until next time. Thanks a lot. 